Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphonia Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite. And I'm Andrew Owen. Um, today uh, we're going to be talking about um, Thomas Ades, right? Is that how you say it? Ades. Ades. <laughs> it's a fun English name. Yeah. Um, and some of the information that we got uh, for today, like we've been doing lately, is from the Oxford Music Online. Um, and also we got some program notes from the LA Phil uh, program concert hall, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so who is Thomas Addis? So Thomas Addis, he is the first composer we've studied so far who is still living. He was born in 1971 in London. He's an English composer. Uh, while, he was, while he was learning how to compose, he studied piano with Paul Berkowitz. He studied composition with Robert Saxton over at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. Um, Saxton was a student of Benjamin Britten and Luciano Berio and, and several other people. So we do have the sort of the, the lineage of composers that we tend to be looking for. Um, but Addis had a had had one early success as a performer very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, he won the second prize uh, playing piano uh, with the BBC Young Musicians um, of the Year competition in 1989. Um, and his rise to prominence as a composer was uh, very fast. Um, he, he got some commissions from the Halle Orchestra, the London Sinfonietta, the Almeida Opera, uh, and the C- City of Birmingham Symphonic Orchestra. Yeah, the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra is... They must be pretty darn good, because I mean, I've been listening to them play Addis's music, just several works of his. And <laughs> it's good. Outrageously difficult music to read. Yeah. Which we'll get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this music is is nuts. So um, he also Thomas Addis also had several uh, has had various residencies in addition to those uh, those commissions. So he's 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 doing well for a composer living in today's society. Uh, he has served for quite some time as the music director of the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group. Uh, so he, he interacts a lot with, with the city of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's been a teacher at the Royal Academy of Music for a while. And he conducts. In 1999, he received both the Ernst von Siemens Prize and the Grawemeyer Award um, and became the joint artistic director of the Aldeburg Festival. These are all big accolades for, for being a conductor. Mm-hmm. And his composition showed exceptional assurance of style and technique uh, from the beginning, from the get-go. Um, it's very aware of what he's doing, mm-hmm. start, start to finish. Yeah. Uh, his success uh, had much to do with the unmistakable presence of a personal accent in music. Um, um, he's got a vividness of detail. His scores are next to impossible to follow without a little practice, I mean, of course. really, it's tough as outrageous. Uh, yeah, it's hard. It sounds hard. Um, um, it, the music has a clear sense of compelling overall design. Um, on one listen, <laughs> uh, one can really enjoy and understand the music. Yeah, it's something that sort of contrasts. I mean, he, he's really detail-oriented. If you look at one of his scores, it sounds aleatoric when you hear it. It sounds mm-hmm. like right. the, the performers are just being told to, to do whatever they want to do. But you look yeah. at the score, it's very precise. Uh-huh. Everything has a triplet or something over it. But at the same time, there's a clear sense of... Uh, of, you can always hear the structure of the piece pretty clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, estab- he, he uses very well-established compositional genres in his own writing, mostly chamber music, but, but some very large works. Um, he wrote a chamber opera called Powder Her Face, which is about a, a, a sex-crazed uh, duchess. Um, and the way that he sets that opera is, is you know, in the same vein as, um, as uh, Salome, 
um, or however you want to say it, Salome, Salome. Mm -hmm. uh, same uh, tradition of that, but still very intimate with the chamber opera way. But in any case, he's, he's written chamber operas, he's written string quartets, such as Arcadiana, and he has used several things of the symphonic form, such as a chamber symphony and a sila. Um, so his music often alludes to specific models, uh, while nevertheless keeping its distance from them. It's not, it's obviously not going to be very clear-cut symphonic form, not a sonata form or anything yeah. like that. Just, it's going to be a little, it's going to be something new every definitely. time he does something. Yeah, definitely. It, um, so, Addis uh, tends to use titles to establish allusions to extra-musical factors. Um, in two compositions in particular, like Living Toys and Asyla, um, the musical response of salient images is exceptionally imaginative. Um, like in Living Toys, he evokes the world of a child who dreams of being a hero dancing with angels and bulls before dying in battle. Um, he does this with magical and menacing sound imagery. Right. Uh, Living Toys is just... you have a title and it's very descriptive and the piece sort of spins out of its own title. Mm -hmm. um, like in Asyla, the, the other piece uh, Bernardo mentioned here is... Uh, is a work that has a kind of ambiguity in the title, Asylum, which I guess is sort of the plural of asylum. Asylum, you know, more than one asylum might be asylum, though we'd say asylums in English. Uh, but, but yeah, Asylum is a metaphor for the 20th century's special blend of extreme comfort and cruelty, stability and instability. Uh, this the title inspires a symphonic process in which the functional contrast between clear-cut basic ideas and richly inventive orchestral presentation can be appreciated at the first hearing. Uh, Asyla was uh, premiered by the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra with Simon Rattle in 97. Nice. I mean, it's, the City of Birmingham can handle just about anything, apparently. I mean, that's, these are some pretty hard pieces, and yeah, they're, they're really interesting to listen to. Especially on their hymn, right? On their rattle. Yeah, his delight in creating and sustaining tension through the accumulation of distinct, elaborately patterned layers of texture uh, suggests an affinity with Charles Ives. In fact, if you're listening to this kind of music, uh, if you're listening to Addis's music and, and you don't know any better, you might just think it's Charles Ives, but maybe with a little, with a slightly different language. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Ives, of course, is the American composer uh, from around the turn of the 20th century who would constantly combine all kinds of different kinds of music into one big sound painting. I mean, mm -hmm. his... His favorite sound was the sound of two approaching marching bands playing different music in <laughs> two different streets. Um, but yeah, he, he mixes a love of romantic expression. Uh, with, you know, he's not trying to completely divorce himself from, from listenable music mm -hmm. uh, or from romantic music because he, he still seems to draw from those things. But he also has the use, he also uses intricate sound tapestries uh, that we'd expect to hear in, in Ligeti and, and these modern composers, modernist composers. Which is why I like this piece. I mean, I am not very fond of 20th century, very, um, you know, clashing music mm -hmm. is not my favorite. Uh, but of course, I mean, I've performed it and it, I mean, I, I understand its position in history and I know why it's important, mm -hmm. but it's not my favorite. Uh, but this, this composition is not, it's really good. I mean, it's not bad. It has a clear purpose, which yeah. helps a lot. You know where it's going, you know why that there's that clashing. That yeah, exactly. Sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, Ares occasionally use, uses pop-inspired in, uh, musical ideas in works like uh, Life Story, which is a setting of a Tennessee Williams poem about uh, One Night Stand. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's a hilarious poem. I think if you haven't read it, or uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're there after a one-night stand, after having done the deed, um, 
you're going to have a conversation to try and get to know each other a little bit. You want to know everything about them and, and then the, the punchline at the end of the thing. And, and this is how people die in fires caused by cigarettes in their hands. I mean, it's, it's a really strange poem. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, uh, life story for, for bass and soprano. So really, really hard stuff. So an, another pop-inspired music is, um, like you mentioned, Power Her Face. Uh, um, which you already explained what it was, um, and also uh, his chamber ensemble transcript of the British new wave pop song Cardiac Arrest by the band uh, Madness, who also did Our House. Our House. In the, the, the one he did was Cardiac Arrest, uh, you know. Um, which I haven't heard. It's just this happy little thing about don't take life so seriously. Just a new wave song that he transcribes into a chamber ensemble work. It sounds great. <laughs> Uh, so the, the piece that we are talking about today uh, does not use so much pop-inspired things. It's one of the non-poppy kind of pieces that he's written. Uh, it's called America, a Prophecy. Uh, this is a work that's about 15 minutes long. It's, uh, it's, it's basically an orchestral lead, an orchestral song. It's for an orchestra, for um, a solo mezzo-soprano, and a... Um, and an optional chorus. Mm -hmm. uh, it was commissioned for the New York Philharmonic Orchestra's Millennium Messages program. Uh, about six composers or so were commissioned to uh, to write music about the end of, uh, of the last millennium and mm -hmm. the beginning of this one. And so this one was performed near the end of the, the last millennium on November 11, 1999. Mm -hmm. uh, it was premiered uh, by the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, sung by Beth Clayton and conducted by Kurt Masser. Nice. Um, it lasts about 15 minutes, like you said. Um, the orchestration, um, it, it, has, it includes four flutes, uh, which are divided, um, the th it, three play flute, and then the fourth uh, is piccolo. Uh, I mean, the third and the fourth flutes are play piccolo as well. Um, we have four oboes, two clarinets, one bass clarinet, one contrabass clarinet, four bassoons, the fourth also serves as contrabassoon. Uh, we have four horns, three trumpets, the first uh, being the piccolo trumpet, uh, two trombones, one bass trombone, a, a tuba, a timpani, um, then uh, big percussion, we have bass drum, field drums, or tom-toms, rattle, uh, rototom, yeah. snare drum, tam-tam uh, with rubber ball, uh, tempo bells, tenor drums, oh, wow, that's a lot. We also have harp, piano strings, um, and of course, like you said, the, the choir and the mezzo. Um, so it's a very, very big orchestra. And if you love piccolos, boy, this is the piece for you. <laughs> like it's l loud and high for a lot of the, just the a lot of the imagery that he draws from there. Oh, um, and so uh, one of his, one of uh, like you said, he, this is one of six composers uh, invited by Kurt Masur and the New York Philharmonic uh, to provide um, messages for the millennium. Like you said, just uh, um, pieces that that try and and give the to give some kind of something related to the eve of, of 2000, the eve of the new millennium. Mm -hmm. So, so Addis uh, turns his gaze from a thousand years ahead to 500 back. He, he looks for his message in the events of the Spanish conquest of the Maya, the Mayan people in the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the music shows two sides of the coin. Uh, it doesn't seem to favor the, the Mayans or the Spanish. It just uh, it seems that his that Addis's music is trying to deliver both just as they are. Yeah, being yeah. historic instead of uh, he's using their words. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he draws from uh, from Mayan text and from Spanish text just to show the two and, and all around that time. Uh, not 
not trying to say that one is bad and one is good, just mm -hmm. saying this is what happened. Uh, so yeah, the Maya music of America, Prophecy, as it first appears, is both blissfully simple, has this uh, rotating pattern of three and four notes, uh, and then constricted and dogged, uh, numbed in sensibility, uh, this, um, the music of, of the Mayans, or of this uh, Mayan prophet that's speaking, is, is very restricted to only a few notes and doesn't really have a lot of exuberance. It doesn't have much of a... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it has a very distinct character that is just part of, of Addis's texture. Mm -hmm. And as, as it changes and develops, uh, it maintains this duality. Um, becoming uh, at once exuberant and a stern exercise exercising control. Oh yeah. Um, similarly, uh, the Spanish music, when it burst in halfway through, after four warnings, um, about not only uh, with warlikeness but with a wild, uh, wild uh, free excitement, uh, pushing uh, pushing up into flamboyant decorations um, for three trumpets. Uh, one of them small and extra high, the piccolo trumpet, of course. It is a little instrument. Yeah, so this whole passage is based on an ensalada, which is a musical salad of popular melodies, uh, entitled La Guerra, uh, written by the Spanish composer Mateo Flecha, uh, quite possibly at the very time when the Maya were being subdued, <laughs> when they were being, uh, I guess, conquered and, <laughs> and whatnot, in the 1530s, 1540s, around that time. So the, the militant Christianity of the choir's text comes from the same source. Uh, but while Addis lets the words speak for themselves, he does set the music prismatically. He bends rhythms and harmonies. He adds a whole new, uh, he adds whole new swashes and sways of texture and makes his own uh, additions that include one incursion of Maya music. Mm -hmm. And there is no real Maya, Maya music to be quoted. Of course, we don't know about any Maya. They did not write down melodies, <laughs> the Mayan people. So, so um, they didn't have notation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, of course, not only because the Spanish did everything they could to obli obliterate everything um, Maya, but also because, like you said, there's nothing, there's no notation that we have from them, musical notation. Um, so, uh, wars, though, uh, did survive, um, passed down and copied through the centuries. Uh, the prophecy um, lament here comes from the books of the uh, Chilambalam, which is uh, jaguar seers. Um, seers? Seers. Yeah. Seers. Like a jaguar. Like jaguar seers. Yeah, like a, not a person who sees a jaguar, but a person who, I guess, uh, foretells things. Mm -hmm. who, I don't know why jaguars are that way, but maybe they see it in their visions or something. Mm -hmm. But this is a very old book. It's, um, I mean, not, I mean, it's. It's from around that time when they're being, they, they already are aware that the Spanish are, are there. It's, it's by that time already, but uh, this particular poem out of this, out of this Chilambalam book, is, um, it refers to the, the destruction of the Mayan people by the Spanish, which had not yet happened. Mm -hmm. um, so she sings like a, like a seer indeed, uh, mostly in slow, uh, sure phrases in the strong needle uh, register, increasing in speed only as she uh, registers alarm that they will come. Uh, words to which she takes up uh, the initial Maya motif. They will come, they will come, they will come, they will come. <laughs> yeah. So her song could well be the sacred chant of a lost culture. It, it leans towards old modes with the flavor of B. Dorian early on. Sure. Just sort of that older sound, folky yeah. sound. But it still ensconces itself comfortably in the rainbow world of Addis's harmony. Just it's it's a big swash of sound. Um, uh, so does the Maya music of the introduction. The the wobbling warbling iteration is soon embraced in and part of a forest of polyphony. Uh, just this this outrageous. I mean this really neat uh, 
basic mode of da 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 is all part of this giant forest of polyphony. So it rests between a bass line that develops into a hubbub in the low winds and a high treble traced overhead by piano and with string harmonics in the strings when they just tap on the string and create these really high pitches. And all these collide and set up interference patterns in between breaks for the voice. Uh, marches of downward chords uh, join in until the whole hyper-alive texture vanishes up into a counterpoint of camel bells. Um, uh, a second section, uh, the dream sequence, starts with wide oscillating flutes and uh, slow contrapuntal uh, streams, like currents in a sluggish river of which the voice becomes one. It's so organic, this whole thing. So, so then, as the singer exactly repeats, Oh my nation, uh, Oh my nation, immediately there's this big um, representation of the Spanish. Uh, so you have these intimations of the Spanish music uh, that beforehand lead up to this full-scale musical battle. And just this, you can imagine, as soon as you hear it, you, you sense the... Um, the war. You just see all these, these Spanish people just marching in droves in their little funny helmets <laughs> made of tin. Uh, just going in and just singing about, um, uh, well, the section is very loud. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Spanish music features a solo piccolo trumpet, giving this distinctive military but still Baroque sound. I mean, it's, it's yeah. clearly hearkening back to an older time. Yeah. I mean, granted, that particular sound is about 200 years later, but yeah. um, still, I mean, you have this, this, this old sound where you have just the super high trumpet. So really, it's the first time also that we've had any kind of meter in the whole piece. Before, it has not sounded like there's just any meter; just sort of goes on fluidly and fluidly. And you'd think, where's what's the conductor even doing? And can you imagine conducting this piece? So this piece, if you look at the score, there's nothing on a beat. Everything is tied or or tuplet. Just everything feels off somehow, but it all works out in the end. I don't know how anyone reads this stuff, or how they can follow a conductor just giving beats and they just sort of figure out where to go around it. Practice, practice, practice. Same, they said the same thing about uh, the Rite of Spring. Oh, sure. <laughs> Rite of Spring has beats. Well, the last moment is crazy, though. The last sure, moment, sure, sure. Oh, man. It's hard to conduct that one. It goes pretty nuts, but with this piece, uh, I mean, I'm, it stays in a pretty clear time. Everything that he says, everything that, he, everything that, that happens in this piece happens in very strict time. In fact, there's a point right early on in the piece where the um, where the big swash of sound and the piccolos, you know, swirling up to the very top, and all you have left is what sounds like wind chimes. Mm -hmm. It's not wind chimes; it's actually carefully notated percussion parts that sound like wind chimes. <laughs> you listen really closely; it's the the, the Mayan motive uh, being played in the percussion. Just just really well done music. I'm so excited that you that you are so into this music That's because. Fine. No, because, I mean, it's great that we have this contrast, you know, I'm very, you know, romantic, I guess you could say, <laughs> and you have this modern take on music, which I love. Well, still, I mean, it's pretty enjoyable modern music, yeah, I think most folks. It's still, it's still great, I mean, that's, I mean, that's great for us, right? We're learning something that, I mean, oh, at sure, least yeah. something that I'm not very comfortable with, so that's great. Um, I mean, I had never even really heard of Rispigi before doing the podcast. <laughs> Um, so all of these introduce a chorus uh, that sings about war of eternal glory. In fact, um, uh, Eterna Gloria is the last beat heard in huge block chords uh, by the chorus and orchestra. Um, this immediately disappears to just the mezzo-soprano giving the impression 
um, of all that being a wash of prophecy. Yeah, I mean, you just have Eterna Gloria, and then just silence. And all you hear is just the, the soprano, just, just in straight tone. And that's another thing to point oh, out. Oh, yeah, yeah, is that, yeah. Is that there is straight tone. Not because that's the singer's choice, because the score indicates when, when to, to and when vibrate. not to use a vibration. So like it says, senza vibrato sempre, like, like no vibrato always, until it says maybe on a note, poco vibrato, maybe just a little vibrato here, maybe some less here, and so the, the singer has to follow these directions exactly to be correct in the score. I hope more composers from now on start doing that, it's because fun, right? that's one thing that always musicians don't know what to do with vibrato. Should we put vibrato? Should we not put vibrato? And it's like the war in classical music. Vibrato or no vibrato? That don't even get, get All resolved with Thomas Addis. And that there are other composers who, who specify when and when to use vibrato or not. In fact, Berio, who is Addis's <laughs> yeah. teacher's teacher, mm -hmm. uh, did that in some of his vocal compositions as well. That's uh, great. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating. The, the way that you, there's no guesswork in any of the stuff. If you follow the score exactly, you have exactly, what exactly the same thing. Exactly that's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, so there follows um, as a separate movement, uh, what is both elegy and heart awakening. Um, instrument uh, partly uh, echo the singer's beautiful melody as if trying to imitate it and not uh, getting getting it quite right uh, until trumpets triumphantly take it over. Right. So at the very end of the piece, the singer ruefully assures that, and this is at the very end of the piece after the, it's a two movement work, and it's yeah. at the end of the second movement. Uh, the singer assures that even though the Mayans will be destroyed, <clears throat> don't worry, Ash feels no pain. And that's, that's, you know, this is an old text, and this is something that they're really uh, describing in a very morose way, but uh, Ash feels no pain, very emo thought, if you ask me. But it, <laughs> it works. Uh, so, so the end of the piece might be the chilling of ember to ash in four final chords. Just you, you see the fire of of destruction and into just the ashes. It's, it's really quite well-designed stuff. It's also interesting, we don't we don't see a lot of pieces in two movements. That's something yeah. that already, if you're going to a, into an orchestra concert and you look at your program and you see a piece that has two movements, that's a red flag. There is something weird about that piece no matter what. <laughs> something is wrong or something is special about it. And of course, there's no, I mean, of course, this piece was written 10, whatever, 15, 7, oh man, I'm so off, 15 years or 16 years ago. Yeah, not so, too far off, yeah. So that's why, um, that's how you know it's something that is not exactly um, classical, I guess. We have Pythagoras to thank for our lack of comfort with the number two. <laughs> no, it's just one of those things. Yeah, it's, the piece has two movements, uh, one which describes the poem and the, the second movement which is sort of, okay, it's, it's over, kind of uh, mm -hmm. morose. Stuff. So, so I'm going to read the, the, the text that it sets. It's actually very short. Uh, this is taken, again, from that, that Mayan book of, uh, of poetry of, and, and prophecy, I guess, if you will. Just, uh, it's, it's traditional poetry that had gone on and had been written down. Uh, so the text uh, that the mezzo-soprano sings is, O my nation, prepare. The people move as if in dreams. They are weak from fuck and drink. The prophets and the priests are blind, in his bed the governor weeps. It is the end of all our ways. O oh, my nation, prepare. They will come from the east. Their God stands on the pole. They will burn all the land. They will burn all the sky. They will break with a cross. O oh, my nation, your gods, your fathers, your children, your cities will fall. Your trees will be scaffolds. And you know, they'll be burned. 
They will rule from the backs of your fallen. It is foretold. Prepare. And then comes the Spanish part, which reads, Todos los buenos soldados que asentaren a esta guerra no quieren ir descansados. Si salieren con victoria, la paga que les darán será que siempre tendrán en el cielo eterna gloria. Uh, and that translates to um, all the good soldiers who enlist in this war do not seek, do not seek uh, for rest. If they emerge with victory, uh, they pay, uh, the pay they will be given shall be, shall be that they will be forever have in heaven eternal glory. It's, it's an old text, so the, the word order is kind of funny. <laughs> Definitely, the Spanish is very strange as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's from the, uh, the 16th century. Mm -hmm. So that's the first movement's text. So you have the Mayan describing this destruction, and then you have the Spaniards coming in going, let's be part of the destruction. So, <laughs> I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's their words, too. I mean, the, these words by, uh, by Flecha are, are the words from that time. I mean, just describing what, what's going on. And then the Mayan prophecy is... Mayan words describing all these images like their god stands on the pole. I mean, who, yeah, of who, course. who could that be, right? Yeah. Um, just really interesting images. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, la the second movement's text is burn, burn, burn. On earth we shall burn. We shall turn to ash. Drift across the land, over the mountains, out to sea. Weep, weep, weep. And it repeats it over and over again. But know this well. Ash feels no pain. And at that, as, as she's going on about Ash feeling no pain, Ash, 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 the, the chorus comes back in singing in, in Latin, mm -hmm. the language of the church. Ecest victoria qua vincit mundum fides nostra. This is the victory by which our faith conquers the world. And just, I mean, sure, maybe it makes the Spanish look a little bad, but... <laughs> that's how you conquer. That's how you conquer, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the name of the game. But no, it's... Um, but this piece is just a brilliant uh, setting of those two um, sides of this conflict and this, these two sides uh, coming together in this, this prophecy, this, the trying to show something that's catacly cataclysmic that's going to happen in the future. I'm super excited for this episode because it's something, at least for me, is very new. Oh yeah. And I, mean, I hope, I mean... It's not something people really ever talk about, I mean... Yeah, and especially because it's so new. Um, I, 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 I mean, I, I assume that a lot of people haven't heard this piece. Oh, sure. Because um, it's, I mean, 16 years, we, you know, we are, we're hard. Our com conductors are really hard on new pieces. Sure. Um, and it, it's been that way forever, you know. When, when Beethoven was composing, when Mozart was composing, well, Mozart maybe not so much, but when Beethoven was composing, everybody didn't like. Um, Once we had the repertory in place, yeah. maybe we didn't feel like adding so much new stuff. Yeah. At least, especially in the 19th century, where you have people who really have this this core of music, and so you hear less of the uh, of the less important people. They decide who's important and who's not important. So, so sure. Thomas Addis has not yet gotten to a place of importance or unimportance. He's just composing music mm -hmm. uh, that is, when it's done, people really do seem to like it because it's extremely well designed stuff and it sounds fantastic mm -hmm. and it is on Spotify if you want to listen to the whole thing and have a Spotify account it's it's quite nice I'll put the link for the Spotify one 
Um, are we good? I think we're great. Great, thank you. Cool. Um, so, like we always say, um, thank you for listening. And um, you can check our videos um, in YouTube, in the YouTube uh, space, but you can also he he listen to us in uh, our iTunes account. Uh, we always appreciate any ratings that you can give us because that uh, helps exposure to our podcast. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns or anything that you want to uh, tell us or correct us, uh, our email is symphonicpodcast at gmail.com. Um, um, is that it? That's all it. Till next time. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. That was good, dude. Isn't it fun to do a piece no one's done? <laughs> <laughs>